Spectrum Business works with small businesses nationwide, so we know that running your own business means doing it all. Marketing, sales, inventory, customer service, and more. Spectrum One for Business helps you keep it all connected for just $49.99 a month. Get fast, reliable internet, advanced Wi-Fi with Security Shield, and a free mobile line for one low price. Stay connected and do it all with Spectrum One for Business. Only $49.99 a month. Go to spectrum.com slash business to learn more. Restrictions apply. Services not available in all areas. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, we're a little bit late going out this week because we wanted to fit in the big news that Volodymyr Zelensky has finally removed the much admired commander in chief of Ukraine's armed forces, General Valery Zelushny. It was hardly a surprise. Rumours of his impending departure have been swirling around for weeks, but it's nonetheless a dramatic and big development with implications not only on the battlefield, but for the political cohesion of Ukraine. It's been a week of late-breaking news. The world has also just been treated to the much-heralded Tucker Carlson-Vladimir Putin interview, which turned out to be something of a damp squib. Before we go into that, tell us about the background to the Zeluzhny stories all. Well, it's been fermenting for many weeks, as we've mentioned on the podcast. In fact, all the way back to last autumn, when Zeluzhny gave an interview to The Economist, where he more or less admitted the big summer counteroffensive had ground to a halt without the long-for breakthrough and appeared to offer little hope that things were going to improve anytime soon. Well, from that moment, it seemed his days were probably numbered. And since then, he's also been slapped down for suggesting that Ukraine's army needed another 500,000 recruits to compete, which uh, seemed to me at the time, and certainly still does too, quite a sensible suggestion. Uh, And so we came to the events of last week when Zelensky tried to sack him, but then appeared to row back. Well, now, as Joe Lindsley predicted on the podcast last week, he's pulled the trigger. So what effect will this have on the battlefield? Well, uh, the first point to make is that Zeluzhny is hugely popular with the troops. So this will be bound to affect morale in some way. As for strategy, well, only time will tell, but it's it's unlikely to mean a big shift from uh, their current attempt to hold the line, isolate Crimea and degrade Russia's ability to supply its troops in Ukraine. But we'll have to wait and see how things pan out with his successor. What do you think the political effect of all of this will be, though, Patrick? Well, I don't think the Allies are going to like it much, are they, Saul? Uh, If you recall, they were actually pressing, both the UK and the US were pressing for Zeluzhny uh, to be kept in place. 
on the other side of the hill, of course, I think the Kremlin are going to love this, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's great propaganda for them. It sort of paints a picture of discord, uh, of political military rivalries, etc. And as for the effect on the Ukrainian people, well, again, we're going to have to wait and see. Um, as you were just saying, Zeluzhny is immensely popular. He's a national hero. Uh, he comes across very well as a as a kind of you know bluff soldier, but also rather thoughtful and incisive thinker. Perhaps too much for his own good. We've had a little bit of reaction thus far. Kiev's mayor Vitaly Klitschko, who's had his own problems uh, with President Zelensky, went out of his way to thank uh, Zeluzhny for his service to Ukraine, adding that he hoped the authorities would justify the changes. It sounds a little bit threatening, doesn't it? Then we've got this uh, Alexei Honcharenko, who's an MP from one of the opposition parties, uh, the one led by former President Petro Poroshenko, who uh, was bitterly critical. He said the move was a huge mistake by Zelensky, and he said it would carry risks for the country, adding, we will all have to pay for this mistake. Um, but what about his replacement, Saul? There is some continuity there, at least, isn't there? Well, there is, because his replacement, General Alexander Sersky, has been around since the start of the full-scale invasion. Um, he led the defense of Kyiv, Ukraine's capital. He then masterminded Ukraine's successful counterattack in Kharkiv that summer, and has been serving as ground forces commander pretty much ever since. But he's not everybody's cup of tea. He certainly divides opinion and is nowhere near as popular as Zeluzhny, which might be the point, of course, the reason he's been appointed. He has, I should say, Patrick, been blamed by many Ukraine soldiers for sacrificing their best units at Bakhmut last year and seems to be doing something similar at Avdivka now. Some feel, of course, that they should have pulled back from Bakhmut much earlier than they did. And some are claiming that he's a political appointment. Either way, the rank and file support for the senior leadership of the army will have taken a dip over all of this, which, as I said, with the sacking of Zeluzhny more generally, this will not be good for morale in the army as a whole. We should also mention that Zelensky highlighted some structural failures in the way Ukraine is conducting the war in his statement over the sacking. He said the high command needed to be renewed and that General Zeluzhny could, and I quote, remain on the team. Exactly how he's going to remain on the team, only time will tell. Zelensky added, the army's actions must become much more technically advanced. The generalship must be reset. He said that there needed to be a different approach to frontline management, mobilization, and recruitment. Um, well, what does all of this mean? It sounds like a lot of words to me. On, on the mobilization issue alone, this, uh, as I've already mentioned, is something that Zeluzhny wanted a fair while back. They need more soldiers. There was a disagreement over recruitment, Zelensky sacking a couple of the top recruitment guys over claims of corruption. This didn't please Zeluzhny because he wasn't consulted over all of this. So it's not exactly clear what all of this means. Um, Patrick, what are your thoughts about you know, what this tells us about the culture at the top of government and the military in Ukraine? Well, I think something we've got to always bear in mind is you've got two, you know, very different cultures clashing here. We've got to remember that Zelensky uh, comes from a very different place to the military. He started out as a comedian, a media entrepreneur. So that's about as far as you can get from the ethos of the professional soldier. In the early stages, the, the relationship seemed to be pretty good, didn't it? In fact, uh, excellent between the military uh, and the political leadership. But I think uh, Zelensky has always seen his main job 
until now, until this, you know, apparently kind of uh, deciding that he's going to um, interfere with the day-to-day running of the war. Uh, until then, he's, he's, I think he saw his main job as a communicator, both to the West and to his own people. Now, what may be behind this, and I'm just speculating here, is that, you know, one of his fundamental roles is he's got to energize people. He's got to breathe life into the war effort as it enters uh, what's going to be a, a, a very testing phase, isn't it? Where, where hope of victory has receded, lots more fighting to be done, lots more losses are going to be sustained. So he's got to persuade the Ukrainians to hang on in there. And now that's a much less rousing message than the victory is within our grasp rhetoric that we were hearing uh, last summer. One thing I would say is that it would have been wise for him to agree an important new role for Zeluzhny prior to making the announcement. It is, after all, I think most people would think uh, his due reward for the great efforts he's made. I think Zelensky owes him that. And just to be a bit Machiavellian, if he was given you know, a front and centre job with, with power and prestige, it would keep him, i.e. Zeluzhny, busy and less likely to become a focus for dissatisfaction of which there will be plenty, I think, in the months to come. Now, just a quick word on that uh, Carlson-Putin match. Bit of a letdown, wasn't it, Saul? It was. It was a terrible interview, in my view, uh, for both Putin and Carlson. Boring and far too revealing of, of what Putin actually intends. There were no tough questions on war crimes and illegal invasions. Surprise, surprise. Instead, Carlson softballed uh, Putin and allowed him to bang on for 20 minutes or more about Russia's pseudo historical, almost mystical claim to Ukraine and other former Soviet territories with ethnic Russian components. If it was meant to reassure the West, Patrick, that Russia wouldn't attack any other countries, as Putin actually claimed in the interview, I mean, countries of course, like the Baltic states in NATO, it signally failed in my view. You wouldn't trust a man who spoke like that an inch. In fact, he made it pretty clear that he intended to take the whole of Ukraine, his maximalist ambitions, which was, he insisted, part of Russia. And the West needs to wake up to that fact and support Ukraine, as we've been saying for so long, Patrick, with everything it needs. But overall, it reminded me of the Prince Andrew interview with the BBC. <laughs> Why did his aides let him do it? You could ask the same question about Putin. Yeah, I, I wouldn't like to be the guy telling Putin, no, you're not doing this. But you're right, it was even less of an event than uh, we thought it would be. Um, and I think, as you say, if Putin thinks he was going to reassure anyone by saying he wasn't planning to invade Poland, well, he also said that he wasn't going to invade Ukraine. So you'd have to be pretty gullible to take him at his word at this stage. Okay, well, back to our original topic of discussion, which was the burning question of how both sides are going to sustain their war effort as the conflict moves into a slogging match in which resources will probably be decisive. The story this week seems to be of the enormous efforts both sides are making to boost their arsenals and secure their military industrial bases to provide them with the wherewithal to resume the struggle in earnest later in the year. It's a competition that pits Russia and the likes of Iran and North Korea on one side and Ukraine and Europe and America on the other. As we often say, it's logistics that win wars. So a vital area that we'll be digging into. But let's kick off with the scramble that both sides are engaged in to replenish weapons stocks. What do we know about Russia's efforts, Patrick? Well, two things are going on, really, Saul. Uh, first, Russia has really ramped up its own production 
transforming the country into something like a war economy. Now, it's able to do this because despite sanctions, the economy is actually doing remarkably well. Putin gave a speech the other day um, in Tula, which is the capital of the Russian arms industry. Now, there he crowed that the country's economy had withstood all the West's efforts to cripple it. Now, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, appeared to agree. Uh, It's just revised its own GDP growth forecast for Russia up to 2.6% for this year. That's a 1.5% rise over what it predicted last October. Well, how is this possible? Basically, the answer is very simple, oil and gas. The Russian economy, as people often point out, is basically perched on top of an oil rig. And there are plenty of uh, countries who are happy to buy Russian energy. So their income is really not hugely diminished. It's not that much less than it was before the invasion. And the money being generated is spent on orders for Russian arms factories, churning out drones, guns, shells, tanks, etc. Already an incredible third of the country's budget is going on the war effort. That's three times up on 2021, the last full year before the invasion. It's not just on arms, it's also on social security payments to soldiers and their families, etc. Now, despite the fact that it's still being described as a special military operation, uh, the rhetoric coming from the authorities is very clear. They're using all this patriotic, great patriotic war type sloganeering in September. The finance minister, Anton Siluanov, used uh, one of these slogans uh, from the Second World War to describe what's going on. He said, everything for the front, everything for victory. You can just see that on the front page of Pravda, can't you? And on top of that, they're spending vast amounts on purchases from the there's pariah state partners, Iran and North Korea. Now, um, the ISW reported this week that Russia is paying Iran roughly $4.5 billion a year to import Shahed drones for use against Ukraine. They're also unfreezing North Korean assets, um, which have been uh, stuck in bank accounts uh, for 14 years now. Now, that's a reminder that uh, it wasn't that long ago that Russia was still a kind of respectable partner in the uh, international world order, complying with uh, international sanctions against North Korea. Well, uh, that money is now being unfrozen, and they're also helping North Korea to evade sanctions in return for missiles and artillery shells. It all sounds pretty grim, but there's some good news on the Ukrainian side, isn't there, Saul? Well, there's some. The the German arms manufacturer Rheinmetall has just said that it will send tens of thousands of 155 millimeter artillery shells to Ukraine this year, along with dozens of Marders. That's the very handy tracked armored infantry fighting vehicle, 25 Leopard tanks and an unspecified number of Skynex air defense missiles. The US Army has also pledged to send more shells, though whether they'll actually get there is certainly in doubt, given that Congress has just failed again the big package that was supposed to send up to $60 billion of aid to Ukraine. If that changes, uh, it's good news because the American factories are hoping to greatly raise production to 100,000 shells a month by the autumn of next year, not just for Ukraine, of course, but to build up their own stocks. But that is now, as I say, in doubt. 
there's more ammo coming from South Korean factories too. Uh, and all of this is fine, but it's a long haul enterprise. And Ukraine really needs to build up its own defense industrial base so it doesn't have to depend on Western largesse to fight its war. Ukraine Armed Forces Chief Valery Zaluzhny admitted this week that Kyiv and its allies had not done enough to improve Ukraine's capabilities, while Russia's ability to reinvest in its own defense industry had given it a significant firepower advantage. Incidentally, it seems that Zaluzhny has ridden out the storm for the time being at least, though the possibility of him remaining in post in the short to medium term is still in doubt. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky hinted at a possible sacking when he stated on February the 4th that Ukraine needs to replace a series of state leaders across the Ukrainian government who are not just in a single sector, such as the Ukrainian military. Now, if that's not a hint, I don't know what is. There are, of course, moves to improve defence self-sufficiency, but it will be a long time before that happens, and Russia's capacity will always be ahead of it. It's interesting, all this Russian crowing about how well they're doing. It would suggest that Putin's pitch in the upcoming elections is really going to be as war leader, the man you can rely on as the West comes from Mother Russia, disregarding the fact, of course, that it was Russia who started it all. The positive economic growth will help, I imagine, to take the sting out of some of these losses. But it's, uh, it is all uh, very artificial, of course, Saul. I mean, even Putin's own people, uh, as well as outside analysts, are warning that there's a high risk with all this public spending of the economy overheating. There are already problems in the labor market. Uh, if you think about it, the army is soaking up a lot of manpower. The weapons factories are attracting lots of workers on inflated wages. Uh, Putin said that Russia's created 520,000, that's half a million new jobs in the arms industry. Uh, and there they are manning these round-the-clock shifts uh, needed to hit the uh, defence production targets. Well, this has created labour shortages elsewhere in civilian industry. And so all this is is not sort of really pointing in the direction of sustained and sort of healthy growth. So all this public spending has already driven inflation up to 7 to 7.5%. Uh, interest rates have gone up 16 to 16%. And um, even the, own, the state-owned uh, Russian Academy of Sciences is saying that because of this reduced capacity for the domestic market, key sectors of the economy are already showing signs of a slowdown. However, as we know very well, Saul, the Russian people have shown themselves remarkably resilient to all the things that might be expected to move the dial in this conflict, you know, mass casualties, a complete lack of a believable proper of a believable propaganda narrative to sustain faith in the war, etc. All these elements are there, but they haven't really, as far as we can see, changed the you know political dynamic that much. So I don't hold out a great deal of hope that an economic turndown will come in time or be drastic enough to affect the election. There is some news on that, isn't there? Yeah, we mentioned last week the bid by the anti-war politician Boris Nadezhdin to, to be approved as a candidate in the March election when Putin will be bidding for a fifth term in office. Nadezhdin, who hopes to run as a candidate for the Civic Initiative Party, has seen a surge of support over the past month with thousands lining up to give him the 100,000 plus signatures he needs to qualify as a runner. Well, surprise, surprise, the Central Electoral Commission has discovered faults in four and a half thousand of the signatures, and he now has to prove their validity if he's to be allowed to take part. 
He's been given an extra day to provide the evidence, which is bigger than the whole thing looks like a maneuver to me to keep him from standing. So if that is the case, there will be no authentic opposition when the poll actually arrives. Now, what about that Tucker Carlson interview, Patrick? Do you think Putin really thinks he can improve his image in the US? No, I don't believe that's his intention. Uh, it seems to me just a, a typical Kremlin disruption ploy. He's been offered this um, this opportunity by Carlson and he's taken it. Of course, we haven't seen it yet. I think it's due to go out today. As we're recording on Thursday. But um, I imagine it will be, you know, the usual kind of tennis rally affair you get in these situations. You know, Carlson will send one question over the net. Putin returns it with a spin. You know, whatever uh, Russia is accused of, it, it will be countered with an accusation of American wrongdoing and hypocrisy and double standards, etc. Uh, the message will be, as always, you lot have done the same thing yourself to protect your vital interests. So why all this hand-wringing about Ukraine? It's all a load of hypocrisy. Uh, it's a very old technique. I mean, H Hitler was doing the same thing all the way back in the 1930s. In September 1934, he was interviewed by uh, the American press baron, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, so when Hearst alluded to the Nazi treatment of the Jews, Hitler shot back, well, what about your treatment of the Native American tribes? I think uh, that Putin will probably be on his best behavior. He is capable of displaying a bit of sort of twinkly charm, sort of roguish charm. And I don't think that, that uh, Carlson is there to actually provoke a showdown. But I just want to say, as a as a journal, former journalist, uh, his claim, Carlson's claim that he's doing something noble and courageous, and that, you know, he, he actually had the, the sort of nerve to ask with the interview, is just simply not true. I mean, many journalists have tried to get interviews with Putin and, and been refused. That's because they're proper journalists rather than polemicists and controversialists which is what Carlson is. He's not a journalist. Putin and the Kremlin hate real journalism as the persecution of the independent media in Russia has amply demonstrated. But, uh, he, you know, he, he loves being the center of attention, Carlson. There's been a lot of controversy on whether he was right to give Putin the platform and even talk of him being sanctioned in some way. What are your thoughts about it, Saul? Yes, I definitely think there needs to be some pushback against this. And, I, I, you know, the noises against this are already growing, to be fair, even in America. Um, Carlson was sacked by Fox News last year, Patrick, uh, which will give you an, an indication of both his narcissism and the extremity of his views. And there's no doubt that he's going to give uh, Putin an easy ride on this. Uh, a lot of Putin's kind of slightly bizarre mystical nationalism strikes a chord, I'm afraid, with some of the far right in America. So it's not just entirely self-serving. I mean, I think Carlson it genuinely is slightly under his spell and probably feels on balance that he's a force for good in this world. I mean, it's, you know, it's extraordinary to try and get your head around that, given the detail we know about what the Russians and, of course, Putin at their head have done in Ukraine. But there we are. Carlson is presenting it, uh, as you say, Patrick, as a straightforward journalistic enterprise, an exercise in free speech, and citing the American people's right to hear Putin speak, to hear the man out. However, he is, of course, as I've said, no friend of Ukraine. 
He did condemn Putin for the invasion, but he's promoted pro-Russian disinformation, like the conspiracy theory that the US and, and Ukraine were purportedly developing biological weapons in Ukraine. Many of Carlson's broadcasts have been used by Russian state television to support their messaging. And he certainly got some warm words from the Russian spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, who said his views were, and I quote, contrastingly different from the position of traditional Anglo-Saxon media. So a couple of extra bits of news, Patrick, it's slightly more optimistic uh, for the Ukrainian side. And that is this extraordinary uh, sinking of another Russian vessel in the Black Sea near occupied Crimea on the night, well, this is about basically about a week ago. And what's remarkable about it, it was a, a so-called Tarantil class uh, corvette capable of firing missiles. And what's remarkable about this sinking is the first time it's actually been carried out by maritime drones. So apparently they swarmed this vessel, got through a very kind of narrow gap to get at it, then swarmed it, obviously making it very difficult for the vessel to defend itself, and not just crippled it, but sank it. It's under the waves. So once again, another element of the Russian Black Sea Fleet has been has been removed. And why does any of this matter? Well, uh, I listened to a briefing by Western officials last uh, week, which said something really significant. And that is that the Ukrainian ability to move ships in the Western half of the Black Sea had now allowed it to get its exports back to pre-war levels. That is pretty remarkable, isn't it? If you think that the original Russian intention was to put a stranglehold on any uh, exports coming out of the Black Sea port. So they are now back to uh, pre-invasion levels and the Ukrainian economy is growing fast. One other interesting thing said by the Western officials at this briefing is, uh, and maybe less optimistic this, there won't be an operational breakthrough on either side in 2024. In other words, they expect tactical gains, probably initially from, from the Russians. It looks like they might take Avdivka in the weeks to come, no real operational or strategic uh, benefit will come out of that is what these Western officials say. But they're also anticipating that there's not going to be much movement in the line on the Ukrainian side either, which leaves in the end an economic arm wrestle, as Patrick's already pointed out at the beginning of the program. And that is something that these Western officials think uh, Ukrainian is reasonably well placed to win as long as it retains at least solid European support. So we'll see how that pans out. Okay, well, just a word about Gaza before we close this half. Well, the news is that the end of the conflict seems as far away as ever. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, has just rejected the terms of a ceasefire in Gaza proposed by Hamas and rebuffed US pressure to move more quickly towards a mediated settlement of the war saying that there could be no solution to Israel's security issues except absolute victory over Hamas. And he's uh, talking about that in terms of, of months more fighting, but he says that victory is within sight, but it's going to take uh, several more months before Hamas is defeated. Uh, meantime, uh, Israeli forces are moving into the southern Gaza city of Rafa, which is right up on the border uh, with Egypt, which is already overflowing with hundreds of thousands of displaced people who've got nowhere else to go. Also worth mentioning that the US response to the strike uh, by Iranian-backed forces on their base in Jordan, which killed three soldiers a couple of weeks back, uh, is going on. A senior commander of an Iran-backed militia uh, has just been killed in a US drone strike in Baghdad. This was uh, someone called Abu Bakir al-Saadi, 
uh, who was the leader of Kataib Hezbollah, which is one of these uh, militias basically supported by Iran. Uh, he was uh, hit and two of his guards with him, all three of them were killed in a vehicle uh, which was uh, traveling through the east of, um, of Baghdad. So uh, the Pentagon said that, uh, didn't claim responsibility for it and said that he was the commander of a, of a unit responsible for directing attacks on American forces in the region. Okay, that's enough for this half. Join us after the break when we'll be answering all your questions. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Listen closely. As a master painter carefully brushes Benjamin Moore Regal Select down the seam of the wall. Mm. It's like poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. Welcome back. The first question is from Benjamin Gallon-Duke. Uh, he's in Toledo, Ohio, in the USA, and he writes, throughout this war, we've seen numerous supposed Wunderwaffe, wonder weapons, but these turn out to be some somewhat less than advertised. And he gives us examples, the BMPT Terminator, the T-14 Armata tank, the Leopards, Phoenix, Ghost Drones, and many others. Of all the weapons brought into this conflict, perhaps only the HIMARS had a significant and unique effect on the trajectory of the war. Even so, the Russians eventually adapted, and now HIMARS HIMARS is just one more weapon on the battlefield, a weapon with capabilities, limitations, and countermeasures, just like any other. I can't help but feel some irritation at what I view as irresponsibly optimistic assessments of what effects the F-16s will have whenever it is that they are activated for combat operations. It reminds me of how people talked up the leopards like they were going to be a war winner. Finally, if you aren't familiar yet, I recommend the substack of Tom Cooper, alias Sarcastosaurus, who's an expert on modern warfare, especially air defenses. I have found his substack to be entertaining and very informative. Who knows, it might be worth your time to approach him for an interview at some point. So, Patrick, have you had a chance to have a look at that? I haven't looked at this substack, no. I've just reflect a bit on what uh, Benjamin has been saying. Um, well, even though you're right, I think, about um, you know people getting excited about the arrival of new weapons on the battlefield and then finding that they don't really change the game. But I mean, th those people include General Zelushny. I mean, in this infamous or famous interview he gave to The Economist, uh, he was very much saying that, you know, for there to be significant movement, it would need the arrival of, of some sort of game-changing technology. Uh, I mean, it's of course, it's evolving the whole time. Um, I was with some journalists who just come back from Ukraine 
last night and they were talking about how AI is uh, having its effect on the battlefield. You know, you may remember that when Russia introduced electronic jamming to thwart Ukraine's combat drones, um, Kiev came up, you know, some of their, their programmers were set to work to try and find an AI tool that would um, help them get around that. And they seem to been quite effective in counteracting that Russian jamming so as the drones stay locked on target. Now, this is, like I say, an on- ongoing sort of battle of technology. Uh, for example, the um, do you remember the, the famous Turkish-made Bayraktar uh, TB2 drone, which uh, played a key role uh, in the defense in the early months of the 2022 invasion? But it became yet less useful as uh, Russia upgraded its air defenses and its electronic warfare capabilities. But um, they've uh, pushed back on that. They're coming up with improvements all the time. Uh, for another example, they've now got these SACA scout drones. These are homegrown drones which are able to d- detect enemy targets, often missed by the human eye, even when hidden under camouflage. So you know, all the time, these advantages are swinging one way and then the other. But um, I agree with you. I don't. I don't think there's anything that uh, is in the offing that's going to really change things. And in the light of what uh, you just said, Saul, about that that briefing, I think that is the expectation, isn't it? That the lines going to be pretty fixed uh, this year. I think that's actually it will come as a relief to Ukraine. They can't sustain those kind of manpower losses and equipment losses uh, that they were having to endure in these great slugging contests uh, in the middle of last year. I think, um, so, you know, Ukraine's probably better off taking a defensive but flexible posture in the coming fighting this year. That is establishing impregnable defenses, taking a leaf out of the Russian playbook, if you like, and letting the Russians batter themselves to death, trying to break through as they did at Bakhmut, and they are doing now in Ardivka. Uh, and then, you know, withdrawing, as you said, so all these places don't have great significance uh, strategically. So, you know, making the Russians pay the price for taking them, then withdrawing, but at the same time remaining nimble enough to seize an opportunity to take ground elsewhere when it pops up to keep uh, the Russians stretched and guessing while all the time, of course, very important, pounding the rear areas. Yeah, no weapon is a wonder weapon per se. We could see that from the Second World War, Patrick, when the Germans were desperately trying to turn the tide. But there are weapons that have made a difference. Um, he mentions HIMARS. Of course, Storm Shadow and Scalp are doing a lot of damage at the moment. Attackums could also be deployed very effectively if, as Joe Lindsley pointed out last week, they were able to be used against Russian targets. Uh, you know, he made the point that Kharkiv is just 30 miles on the Russian border. It can be targeted by whatever the Russians want to throw at it, but they can't send their long-range munitions that come from the West back because the West won't let them. And it's an absolutely ludicrous situation. But what the Ukrainians are doing very effectively, as we can see with the sinking of that warship and their general ramping up of attacks on Crimea, which we haven't reported, but they are ongoing all the time and making it increasingly difficult for the Russians to operate in the Crimea because they have targeted, again, very effectively, their air defense systems. So, it, you know, I am very interested in, in, in finding out more about air defense because that is obviously a key element of this whole 
battlefield. And what what Ukraine seems to want to do over the uh, next 12 months is not, as you say, Patrick, attempt to make big battlefield gains because it doesn't feel it can do that without losing an awful lot of people. Instead, it wants to make it increasingly impossible for the Russians to operate in the Crimea. And it is heading in the right direction in that sense. Matt Roof uh, says, within the last few months, I've read Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate. Uh, this is a sort of massive World War II novel, um, which is getting a, a new vogue, isn't it, Saul? I mean, it was published many years ago now, but um, I think the Ukraine war has made people pick it up again. Very, very you know, brilliant uh, war correspondent and, and a great novelist as well. So he was with the Red Army during all the big campaigns, actually, I think. Uh, but he was also something of an amateur, amateur historian. And so Matt asks us, I wanted to gain some insight into your processes as historians and war correspondents for creating the podcast. How do you sift through the haze of propaganda to find fact and some semblance of truth? How do you prioritize and organize information on such a scale so it's consumable and understandable for a wide audience and do you believe we can learn how to avoid wider conflicts by seeing how previous diplomacy has done so in the past? Thanks so much to both of you. And cheers from Philadelphia, US. Well, thanks, Matt. Yeah, it's a kind of very big philosophical question, isn't it? So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'd offer a slightly disturbing answer to that um, from my perspective. And that is, you know, when people ask about the process of, of being a historian, they, they, they like to think there's some kind of almost science or structure to the method that you're going to use lots of reliable sources and you're going to find your way, you know, vaguely close to the truth. And that's certainly the intention. But the reality is that a lot of sources can be questioned just like they can when you're doing war reporting. Same sort of idea, I think, Patrick. And in the end, you have to use a lot of instinct, you know, a lot of kind of feel for what sounds like it's true, you know, what, what kind of person is telling you it and what kind of, you know, reason for not giving you accurate information, i.e. anything that comes out of Russian official sources. So you, you you can immediately discount a lot of that sort of thing. But if you don't have a really hard line one way or another, you have to kind of sense whether or not you believe something. And you also have to build in human reaction today, human reaction in the Second World War, with what humans have always done. So there's an element of human nature that informs you with history. Now, if all of this sounds a bit nebulous, Matt, that's because it, it really is. So in the end, you have to decide when you listen to our podcast where you think our sifting of the very contrasting bits of information we get about any particular story. And we've been, you know, hauled over the coals a, a few times by believing one side a little bit too much or believing another side a little bit too much. Uh, you have to make up your own mind as to whether or not you think that we are giving you a vaguely accurate uh, assessment. And that is you using your own judgment. So there's a lot of judgment, I think, involved in all of this. It's a lot more subjective than you realize. Yeah, I mean, truth is a very fluid commodity, isn't it? So I think that's one thing. As historians, we learn uh, the more you study history, the more you write history, the more, as you say, uh, nebulous, the whole concept of truth becomes. But I think as you, again, rightly says, it's, it's not a science. Uh, there are no iron laws of history. I think all you can really do when we're looking at the present is measure probability from what we know of the past. So that, you know, sets you in the right direction. But having said that, you can't actually really use that as a reliable guide to what's going to happen. I mean, just think about what's going on in Ukraine 
uh, given the circumstances, uh, the overall sort of political circumstances uh, and the Russian performance in the conflict, the massive losses they've sustained, all this you would have thought would have had a dramatic effect on the political landscape of Russia by now, but it hasn't. So, you know, yes, history can tell you uh, quite a lot, I think, about where you've got to, but it's certainly not going to be a, uh, an infallible guide to where you are heading. So, yeah, um, sorry to sound so imprecise, but that's the name of the game. You're constantly having to reassess that. And the other thing I think that, that you rightly said, Saul, is that, um, you know, to, going back to the question of history, you always got to guard against, you know, applying a sort of 21st century, putting your 21st century goggles on, peering back into the into the past. That's why... Okay, we've got an email from Therese in Norway. Um, she makes a couple of points. What do you think about how the West have handled escalation management since you know, since February uh, 2022? And should they have changed their approach at some point? I mean, she contrasts this with the eagerness with which the, the West are striking the Houthis. I'm not sure there's a direct comparison, but there we are. Uh, and she also says, is the West trying to get out of an imagined sunk cost fallacy when it comes to supporting Ukraine? This seems to be more of a thing in the US, but I think they're missing something vital. The argument seems to be, says Therese, why should we use American tax dollars on Ukraine? The fallacy here is that if they pull all support now or later, all the investments made will be totally lost for absolutely no gain. If all support ends and Russia takes all of Ukraine, everything would have been a total waste. Sure, Russia would be weaker and poorer, but not a single Western politician will care two months after Kiev falls, says Therese. Patrick, what do you think about that? Well, she does. I think she concludes by saying we will support, the, 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 their argument is we will support Ukraine for as long as it's needed. Well, they don't need any more support if they're forced to surrender. Well, I think um, you're, you're right about that. It will be money down the drain, won't it? Uh, and it's certainly not going to make uh, Europe in the first place any more secure. I think that if the Russians do succeed in Ukraine, they will be coming for Europe next, not in the kind of scary scenarios that uh, have been aired in the media in recent weeks. It's not going to be an invasion a la Ukraine, but I think more an endless campaign of disruption, you know, unsettling of its immediate neighbors with all sorts of operations that don't amount to a sort of crude military uh, intervention, but a steady undermining of confidence, of security, of morale, and it's, it's already happening. You know, it's happening all the time with these kind of mysterious sort of operations against infrastructure, you know, interfering with um, flight control data, all this sort of stuff. And I've just seen uh, the latest example, which uh, is in the run-up to the, to the March election. So the Kremlin's already started this sort of slightly unnerving campaign uh, against its neighbours uh, in, the, in the Baltic states and in in Georgia, uh, the Russian foreign ministry the other day summoned the Latvian, Lithuanian, and Estonian uh, charge d'affaires in Moscow. Uh, this is, I think, a couple of uh, days ago, uh, claiming that there'd been a lack of a proper response to repeated Russian requests for Baltic authorities to provide security to Russian nationals who will be voting in the uh, March 2024 elections. So uh, the foreign ministry spokesman Maria Zakharova said that any disruptions at Russian polling stations in Baltic nations will 
will cause, quotes, serious protest among Russians living in those Baltic states uh, because such disruptions would violate the constitutional rights of Russian nationals to vote in Russian elections. Well, there's been no sign of any any uh, moves of any hostility towards Russian nationals. So this is all the kind of, again, it goes back to the to the 1930s, doesn't it, Saul? It's uh, exactly what, what uh, the Nazis were doing, claiming that their minorities in neighboring countries were being persecuted and saying, you know, it's our duty to go in and protect them. It's all... It's all basically uh, fabrication. So here, here, here again, you know, this is a, a typical uh, example, I think, of the sort of thing we can expect. Uh, well, it's already going on, but it will only get worse if Russia is allowed to win in Ukraine. They'll have their tails up. And we can see a, a future of, of this constant sort of low-level conflict, if you like. Yeah, like you, Patrick, I don't uh, like harking too much on uh, direct historical parallels, but the 30s to now is a really clear one, I'm afraid. It is a good example of how history can repeat itself. It rarely does, but in this case, it will. And I go back to human behavior again. If you don't stop a bully, he'll keep bullying. Uh, and that's exactly what's going to happen, not just with Putin, of course, in Russia, but other states that have aggressive intentions. And I include China in that with its, its uh, stated aim to get its hands on Taiwan, even though the Taiwan population has absolutely no desire to uh, be ruled by communist China and many other places around the world who will be emboldened by what happens in Ukraine if Europe and the US, but particularly Europe, doesn't front up and make sure that Ukraine doesn't lose the war. Okay, well, uh, just before we depart, some breaking news. Uh, this just in, uh, Boris Nadezhdin was hoping to stand as the anti-war candidate in those upcoming elections in Russia, has been told he will not be standing. His candidacy has been rejected. Well, it doesn't come as a great surprise, but it's uh, rather depressing news nonetheless. Uh, just before we go, um, I want to give a shout out for some uh, bunch of guys who are heading off to Ukraine, bravely and nobly driving a convoy out to Ukraine from Wales, stuffed with drones and medical supplies, accompanied by our old friend Askold Krushelnitsky. So good luck to you, old boy, uh, and to Mick, Antonio, Carwin, Wayne, Roman, and Jan. Bon voyage and well done. So we'll see you on Wednesday uh, for another episode of Battleground 44. This week, we're looking at the impact of all those American GIs arriving in Britain prior to D-Day. Do join us then. Goodbye.